0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump's comments from a decade ago, describing what amounts to sexually assaulting women, have cost him the support of many leading members of his party. That includes three here in Colorado. Trump calls this locker room talk. If you tuned out to politics this weekend, there's a lot to catch up on. And to help with that, CPR's Megan Verlee is here. Hi, Megan. Hi, Ryan. These three include U.S. Senator Cory Gardner, Congressman Mike Kaufman, and Senate candidate Daryl Glenn, all calling on Trump to leave the ticket this weekend. Tell us more about what they said.
1: Well, Mike Kaufman talked to the Denver Post, or at least issued a statement to the Denver Post, and said Trump should step aside for the good of the country. Uh, Cory Gardner took to Twitter, said he will write in Trump's running mate, Mike Pence, if uh, Trump does not withdraw. And on Facebook, Senate candidate Daryl Glenn uh, put put out a statement saying that Trump's comments disqualify him from being commander-in-chief. And also, it's lower profile, but Trump's Larimer County co-chair, Nicholas Morse, uh, also took to Twitter to say that he was resigning his role with the campaign. Morse is the party's uh, second congressional district candidate. I want
0: to say that we'll record an interview with Daryl Glenn later today that will air this week on Colorado Matters. Is this a big change of policy for these men?
1: Well, for Morse and Larimer County, it obviously is. Uh, it's also a big shift for Daryl Glenn, who's been more willing than most uh, Republican candidates and high-profile politicians in the state to embrace Trump. He opened enthusiastically for Trump uh, during uh, the candidate's first Colorado Spring rally. Gardner in the past has been, um, I would say, even cooler than lukewarm for Trump has said he would vote for him, but uh, never came out strongly backing him.
0: And what about Kaufman?
1: Well, Kaufman's made distaste for Trump actually a part of his campaign. He released an ad a while ago that got a lot of attention, saying that he didn't care for Trump or Hillary Clinton, I should say. Uh, So it's not a surprise that he was one of the first Republican uh, congressmen nationally to uh, to jump ship entirely this weekend. And I think it's worth noting that Kaufman is in probably the toughest race of his political career as a congressman this year. His district's very politically divided; it has a lot of Latino and immigrant voters, and uh, because of that, his opponent, Morgan. Carol has already been doing everything she can to link him to Donald Trump. Uh, and her campaign, of course, this weekend uh, came out and said that his announcement was too little too late.
0: What other fallout has there been to Trump's comments so
1: far? Well, obviously, they've gotten a lot of national attention. Uh, news outlets have been tallying up all the elected officials uh, who've renounced Trump, and there are quite a number nationwide. Closer to home, it's harder to tell yet how voters will react. Uh, I went and read through some of the comments on Kaufman, Gardner, and Glenn's Facebook pages. Even if they didn't post something on their Facebook page, people would go to the most recent posting and vent about this turn of events. Uh, there are definitely a lot of angry Donald Trump supporters, uh, Colorado voters out there vowing not not to support these three men now. Uh, And the question is going to be how large is that group and will they really end up withholding their votes?
0: What have we heard from the rest of the Republicans in Colorado's congressional delegation?
1: Well, the, uh, two of them have said that they are disappointed with the tape, but that they will stand by the candidate. Uh, that's Doug Lamborn. He told the Colorado Springs Gazette he's glad Trump apologized for the remarks. Uh, Scott Tipton on the Western Slope is quoted in the Grand Junction Sentinel saying he's appalled by the comments, but that electing Trump would advance the issues he cares about for his district, uh, repealing Obamacare, r- reviving rural economies, that sort of thing. And I haven't found any response yet from Eastern Plains Congressman Ken Buck.
0: One thing that strikes me about all of- of this is uh, with the Trump tapes, the reaction to them, that to some extent it revives a democratic political attack line that's really familiar in this state that Republicans have a war on women.
1: Yes, this was an attack that Democrats used very effectively in uh, Senator Michael Bennett's first run uh, for this office. And of course, now he's up for re-election against Daryl Glenn. Um, he used that against Congressman Ken Buck, actually. It's a line that uh, former Senator Mark Udall relied on a lot um, unsuccessfully against Cory Gardner two years ago. And Democrats in Colorado have long felt that painting the Republican candidates as unfriendly to women is a key uh, to winning elections. We have a lot of women voters. It's a very activated block, uh, And so Democrats have used comments like Donald Trump's as weapons frequently in the past, not just against that candidate who said them, but against the party and its politicians as a whole. Uh, and that may be why you see these three Republicans, two of whom have to win statewide and one of whom is in a very swing district, uh, coming out so quickly and so forcefully against that Trump tape.
0: In the midst of all of this, the Clinton campaign is coming to town. Uh, the Veep nominee, Tim Kaine, is at the National Western Stock Show this afternoon for a concert and Get Out the Vote event with Dave Matthews. This is the first time in, what, more than a month that there's been a member of the Democratic ticket in Colorado. Uh,
1: yeah, since August, actually. And for a while, polls suggested that Clinton had locked up Colorado. So the campaign was really moving its attention, uh, its money, its ad spending, and its visits elsewhere. More recently, polls showed Trump tying things up, even leading in some polls. Uh, that led his campaign to wrap up, ramp up its efforts. Trump, Pence, and A couple of Trump's children have all been through the state quite recently. So it's not really surprising that the Clinton campaign is back here again.
0: And what does the polling say about Colorado at this point?
1: Well, I want to say that it's important to remember that the polls right now do not reflect any public response, uh, the polls in Colorado at least, to the Trump tapes or to last night's debate. Um, But there are times when this polling data can offer some context. And at this point, the two sites that uh, do a lot to average polls real, real clear politics and 538, they both both have Clinton up six to seven points in the state. Thanks, Megan. Thank you, Ryan.
0: CPR's Megan Verlee covers politics and policy. The calls over the weekend for Donald Trump to step aside got us wondering about the status of Colorado's ballots. This state conducts voting by mail. And on the phone is Colorado's deputy secretary of state. That's Suzanne Steyart. And to Suzanne, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Uh, To be clear, there are no signs that Trump will heed the calls of these Republicans and leave the race. But I'm curious, have Colorado's ballots been printed at this point?
2: Um, Most of Colorado's ballots have been printed. We've uh, had ballots out to our military and overseas voters for a couple of weeks now. And the bulk of the rest of the ballots have been um, printed and are ready to mail next Monday. Mm,
0: Next Monday. And could they be reprinted at this point?
2: No, no. And... And we uh, we have vacancy statutes in Colorado that deal with um, that type of scenario. And in a uh, partisan election, any votes that go to um, one candidate, if that candidate withdraws after ballots are printed, those votes are counted for whoever fills the vacancy.
0: Ah, now um, talk about write ins and the ability to do them on Colorado's ballot.
2: Well, Colorado requires anybody who wants to be a write-in candidate to file an affidavit 15 days uh, ahead of time, certifying themselves as a write-in. So if you write in um, somebody who hasn't uh, accepted essentially a nomination or who hasn't petitioned to do that, uh, the vote doesn't count for the write-in. It's not tabulated. Uh, Other write-in candidates, um, they have to file paperwork ahead of time.
0: so let's be clear here. Those Republicans who are saying I'm going to write in Pence's name for the top of the ticket, what, what, what is the effect of, of that on their ballot at this it, point?
2: It won't be counted. Um, it'll just count as an undervote, essentially.
0: Okay. Unless the Republican Party makes some sort of change, you're saying.
2: Right. And that's the Republican National Committee that, that would make a change. And if they, if in fact, Trump were to uh, withdraw the Republican National Committee, Uh, would fill that vacancy. They would call the committee together, and then that vacancy would be advertised um, through websites, and we would put it on our sample ballot, but the ballots that actually went out um, would not include any
0: name that the committee filled. Simply because it's too late, you're saying? Right. Okay. Did your office field any questions from GOP leaders this weekend about room for changes?
2: No, we fielded a lot of questions from the media, but um, we didn't field any questions from the GOP. I mean, they have their own attorneys. Um, Trump has an attorney in Colorado. The GOP has attorneys in Colorado. And so I'm sure they're familiar with all of those uh, nuances of the law.
0: Well, why we have you on the line, Suzanne, um, what's the last day that a voter can safely return their ballot by mail? Let's just get to brass tacks about the election in general
2: we typically uh tell people that we prefer they return their ballots uh that if they're going to put them in the mail that they put them directly in a um US post office uh, on Friday before the election or that they put them in their own mailbox Thursday before the election and that's because mail in Colorado is processed through Denver typically except for two of the counties um La Plata uh and uh I can't remember the other county down south, but two of the counties down south are processed through um, New Mexico. And so for mail to make it back up um, from, an a- from an area in southern Colorado back to Denver and then uh, back to the polling area and, uh, down in the springs or somewhere else takes about three or four days.
0: All right. So Thursday, if it's in your mailbox, Friday, if it's in a U.S. Post box. And then if you don't get it in the mail by that date, what do you do?
2: We recommend that you drop it off at a drop-off, uh, either a polling location or a drop box uh, set up by the county, and those are all advertised on the county websites. Or you can go to GoVote Colorado and get a list of uh, voter polling and service centers uh, on the GoVote Colorado site. You can also track your ballot um, and see whether it's been counted or not, if you have any questions about uh, whether it's been received.
0: And one more thing about voting in Colorado. It was uh Fairly recently made the case that you can register on Election Day. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. You can register up to Election Day. You can vote on Election Day right after you register at any voter polling and service center. If you want to register and receive a ballot by mail, you need to do that eight days before the election.
0: Eight days. OK, so there's still a little bit of time. Not much, though. Thanks so uh-huh. much. Thanks so much for being with us, Suzanne.
2: Sure. No problem. Thank Suzanne,
0: you. Suzanne Steyart, Colorado's Deputy Secretary of State. Coming up, is it Columbus Day? Indigenous People's Day, both? The answer depends on where you live. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Look on just about any calendar, and you'll see today is labeled Columbus Day. You may even be off work because of it. Most state and federal employees are. The city of Denver, however, doesn't recognize Columbus Day, but it did just join a growing list of communities to declare the second Monday in October Indigenous Peoples Day. The move follows years of tension over this particular square on the calendar. City Councilman Paul Lopez joins us. He led this effort. And Councilman, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. Let me say that the city of Boulder officially recognized Indigenous Peoples Day about two months ago, I think. Uh, explain what last week's vote means for Denver.
3: You know, I, what? first and foremost, you know, it, it honors uh, Denver's birth, right? I, when you look at uh, the history of Denver, too often, you know, it's either misrepresented or 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 it well just misrepresented, right? I think when people think of uh the founding of Denver, they think of settlers, you know, setting up camp at the uh, uh Platte River and and uh, Cherry Creek confluence and that uh we owe to the encampments, the seasonal encampments of the Arap- Arapaho and Cheyenne people and you know for for us to do this, it, it honors that history, but also it it creates a visibility and awareness of that history, which like I said, f- goes far too misrepresented uh, in uh, in our history books.
0: Misrepresented, in other words, people see the founding of Denver as related to, say, the gold rush or something yeah, like that. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: exactly, when it happened hundreds of years before that. This was a unanimous vote of the council, I believe. It was a unanimous vote. Uh, last Monday, it was a... 12 to 0 vote. And the mayor has just signed the bill, I believe. He signed it last week. So will it be a day off for employees? You know, in in working with uh, the community and stakeholders, you know, they wanted to have a a day off uh, for employees. What it is, it's an an official observance of Indigenous Peoples Day. And, you know, what what folks really wanted to see was a day on and and a day on to uh to recognize it and to uh you know whether it being classrooms in our communities and symposiums and community space, you know, that's important. All right. But it won't be a day off
0: for employees. It won't be a day off. And to be clear, Columbus Day is not is that right? For, yeah. this, for city employees?
3: Never has been. Yeah. And has never been and observed, as far as we could tell. Yeah. Never, never has been law in Denver. And that's the contrast
0: with the state and the federal yeah. view of this. Yes. I wonder what about your experience or your district led mm-hmm. you to fight for this?
3: Well, you know, I, I think it's something that's not necessarily a, a district-centric um, this is something that's got to do with with the whole city and county of Denver, and, and in particular, and, and recognizing that history and making sure that you know, one, we are, we're aware of that, you know, misrepresentation that that happens far too often. But it's not necessarily something about a, a history book or or a past. It's also it's also present uh, challenges. It's also you know when, when you when you are aware of Indigenous you know People's Day and what that means to us and. What that means to our history, you you also have to you know make sure you're addressing current the current situation. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of inequity. There's uh you know there's gaps in in, in you know economic opportunity. There's gaps in health. There's ha- gaps in gaps in in housing. And it uh, you know it, it requires and it prompts action,
0: right? <laughs>
3: While he sailed under the Spanish flag, Christopher Columbus was Italian. And
0: uh, the fact that Denver doesn't recognize Columbus Day made last week's vote doubly tough for some members of the city's Italian-American community. Mm -hmm. Rita DeFrange is president of the Denver Columbus Day Parade Committee. That parade took place over the weekend. She says the council's decision, quote, added insult to injury.
2: They didn't reach out to... The Italian community, they it hadn't been publicized at all. It was sort of a backdoor, if you will. And many of my compadres, the Italian-Americans, they're very, all very disappointed. They all want to know how this can happen.
3: Was the process not publicized enough? We made it as public as possible. Uh, you know, we, uh, our meetings are public. Our minutes are public. Our announcements are public and you know that you know with all due respect to to miss miss frange I, I i think you know how i'm not does she speak for the entire italian community and I don't know, is it this something about the that entire that, uh, but she certainly speaks for some of them no i i i get that and i know I, I get that i get that frustration but we have been absolutely public about it there has been no back door anything uh and, and i'm a little confused because you know uh, first and foremost, we don't celebrate Columbus Day in Denver. And it's, you know, it, as of last week, it's now Indigenous Peoples Day. And well, and, and Defrange's reaction is indicative of the tension that exists among right. groups representing
0: Indigenous peoples right. and the Italian-American community. Saturday's Columbus Day parade took place at the same time as a Four Directions march held mm-hmm. by an American Indian group.
3: Why recognize one and not the other? Well, first of all, you know uh, the celebration, and and I, and I think of a quote from our brother Cesar Chavez, right? And and he was so eloquent in, in in saying this, but and and I and I think of that quote in application to this this question, and the celebration of one's own culture doesn't require. The uh, uh, discon- not discontent, the uh, contempt or disrespect of another, and, and yet, the same and yet, is true. But the for city Indigenous is saying, People's but the city Day. is saying yes to one and not to another. Well, no one's brought the question for the other. Plain and simple, Columbus Day has never been an official city holiday, and you know, I know that the, the, the time I've been there, there's never been a bill to create it. There has never been a movement to create it. And, you know, on the contrary, you know, I think we we could all see that there is a a huge international and national movement to recognize Indigenous Peoples Day. Let's hear again from uh, Mr. Frange,
0: the president, uh, again, of the Denver-Columbus Day Parade Committee. She says the Italian-American community desires aren't very different from the Indigenous Peoples, but that message was lost in the fight years ago.
2: And there were a lot of Heated discussions or, or firm discussions, and they didn't go anywhere. They, we didn't have the right people around the table. And I think it's about time that we get those people around the table and discuss this because, you know, we're all proud of our heritage. It doesn't matter who you are, European, Italian, Spanish. Everyone should be allowed, given their right, to celebrate their day.
0: Do you think there needs to be a larger community discussion or do you think that the discussion has happened?
3: You know, there always needs to be community dialogue, always. And there should always be room at the table for community dialogue. It's not something I'm, I'm, I'm not opposed to. And, and here's, here's, here's the thing, if I, if I may say so. As I said before, the, you know, the celebration of one's own identity and, and, and with this and the celebration of Indigenous Peoples Day doesn't require the contempt or disrespect of the Italian-American community. It's, you know, it, it's meant to honor and recognize the founding of Denver, yeah. the founders of Denver, and, that, and that's something that's very important uh, to our city's history. And you know, the the, uh, the way that this is framed as being something anti-Italian is not right. Okay. This is this is not an an, an, an an attack on any way on Italian culture or history. If you really really it's it's that culture, that history, the, the science brought forward by our Italian-American brothers and sisters, you know, with Americo Vespucci, who really actually was the gentleman who was responsible for, you know, navigating and, and charting the Americas for the first time. That's why our, our country's called America, or our continent anyway. You know, uh, that, that science, that culture, that's something that, that we, we all embrace. And this should in no way be uh or, or repeated as some kind of conflict between between you know one culture or another why have it on the same day that's something that is it's a big movement uh throughout not just denver or colorado but throughout the world throughout the americas in south america it has been uh the other the other de la, dia de, dia de la de las americas and mexico is dia de la raza or dia día of the people and you know and here you know, it's it's very important. It's it's an important mark in our history. Last session, a bill to recognize Indigenous Peoples' Day
0: was killed in the state legislature, uh, unanimously voted down in a bipartisan vote in the House. Mm-hmm. What does that say to you? Again, this contrast between the city and county in Denver of Denver and
3: uh, the state
0: and right. the federal government. Well, you
3: know, Denver's politics are a little different from uh, from the states. You know, there's there's a lot more different stakeholders. There's a lot there's a lot more land, so. You know, it's it's one thing to to do it in Denver. It's another thing to do it in Colorado. And from what I understand, those discussions are taking place. And, you know, would you my, like to see it recognized by the state? Yeah, I think it should be. I think it should be because it's part of our state history as well, too. What does this vote mean to you personally? I wonder? Personally, I, I think it's an opportunity to really highlight, to really celebrate and to really to, to, at the end of the day to recognize um uh you know the, the the contributions and the the history that is indigenous to Denver, and for far too long it goes so misunderrepresented right in our textbooks in our history, and that invisibility eliminates over generations it eliminates that identity it erases that culture it erases that knowing that 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 consciousness and what we, we want to be able to do is When folks read about Denver, that it wasn't a city that was just founded on the heels of the gold rush, that it was founded long before that, and there were so you know that those encampments on uh, the Platte River and and, and Cherry Creek confluence gave birth to this city. I think it's very important that we acknowledge that, but it's also important that we address the, the, the modern issues. Right? It's sad to be able to to know that history, but yet see so, mu- so many uh, so many members of the indigenous uh, community suffering in poverty. Thank you for
0: being with us. Thank you. Denver City Councilman Paul Lopez talking about the second Monday of October becoming Indigenous Peoples Day in Denver. We learned reading a 2010 column from historian Tom Noel of Colorado's connection to the origins of Columbus Day. In 1907, a Denver man asked a Hispanic state senator to sponsor a bill creating that holiday. You can read that piece at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Hurricane Matthew was a killer in the U.S. and in the Caribbean. In southern Haiti, the death toll has surpassed 1,000. Let's check in with the Colorado nonprofit Haiti Children, which has worked with abandoned kids in that country since 1994. It's based in Carbondale. And President Robin Hamill joins us from Aspen. Welcome to the program. Hi, good morning, and thank you for having me. Yeah, sorry it's under these circumstances. Uh, You've been in contact, I understand, with your colleagues on the ground in Haiti. And what's the scene in the places you serve?
4: Yeah. So leading up to the hurricane, we're in constant contact. And during the hurricane, we're in constant contact. And we have been ever since the hurricane has passed. And, you know, we're thankful that our operations and our infrastructure and our kids and our staff um, all fared very well. The nation's been devastated, you know, death toll of at least 1,000 and likely to rise as waters recede and debris is removed. But thankfully, um, you know, the people that we are um, most responsible for um, are okay, although we serve 5,200 people each and every day, and we've not been able to check in with each and every one of those people to make sure that, that they're okay. But we hope to do that in time. Robin, I'm reading a, a lot of uh, news stories about the potential for an increase in
0: disease post-hurricane. Uh, what are your concerns in that regard?
4: Yeah, we're very concerned about standing water, um, particularly as respects cholera, Zika, and malaria, um, the former two uh, mosquito-borne diseases. And so we are taking precautions in the areas that we're able to make sure that we remove all standing water. Um, but it, it's an enormous crisis um, that could explode. Um, we do provide tens of thousands of gallons of free clean drinking water to the communities in Williamson, where we operate our campus, as well as in Port-au-Prince, where we operate two large schools. Um, so that uh, operation of water distribution continues um, unabatedly, and you know we're trying to serve just as many people as possible. You talk about your people and the people you serve
0: largely being um, okay after this storm, uh, alive, I suppose. Um, but what what about the communities themselves? Maybe in in the surrounding areas, what are you what are you yes. hearing about the the toll?
4: Yeah, so the community of City Soleil, which is the poorest slum in in all of the Western Hemisphere, is where we operate a school of about – and we educate about 260 kids each and every day. That community sits um, right on the port, right next to the port, and it was devastated. Um, um, We do not have – we're still trying to reach – uh, the parents and students of, of the kids to make sure that they're okay. Our school um, structure is fine but we're very concerned about the people that live in the community. Further um, up to the, uh, up the mountain from our campus in Arcaille and Williamson, um, which is about 40 miles south- northwest of Port-au-Prince, the two small hamlets of Doko-1 and Doko-2, which we provide medicine, food, nutrition, clothing to uh, those communities were ravaged and 17 homes obliterated uh, all of the crops um, that surround them. Um, these are subsistence farmers. Those crops are gone. Uh, and their are um, chickens, goats, cows. Um, most of them were killed in the storm. And so we're very, very concerned about the nu- nutrition um, of those communities. And those communities are very short on fresh, clean drinking water. And so that remains a, a constant concern of ours. Nutrition, yes, of course, uh, an issue. And the fact that that's,
0: that is their livelihood, that is their connection to life. So you work with children who've been abandoned, um, largely, and I wonder if this will
4: lead to more abandoned children? Yeah, you know, the issue of abandonment in Haiti is is a major, major one. And we're one of the only um, facilities that will take um, abandoned children that have any form of disability, whether it's mental or physical. Um, The government just doesn't have the capacity and most uh, orphanages, and we do not consider ourselves an orphanage because we do not outwardly a- adopt children. We take children in that have been abandoned. Um, during the storm, four kids were dropped off at the gate of the mayor in RKA, which, which is the town that our campus is located in. Three of those kids were in perfect condition and were immediately accepted by uh, orphanages around the community. The fourth um, young man, we estimate his age to be 13 or 14, uh, suffers from disability, um, and he was brought to us because no one else would take him. and so we opened our arms and took him in and provided and rendered immediate medical assistance to him as well as provided nutrition and some water. And uh, the before and after pictures that I think you guys have are just in, in, incredible of, of just in a few short days that we were able to, to help this young man. But I would expect that there would be more um, displacement of children either um, because parents were killed um, in the storm Or that the conditions on the ground are such that parents feel that they have no option but to give up their children. And so, yes, I fear that this uh, Hurricane Matthew will cause an increase in child abandonment. And does the nonprofit, your nonprofit, Haiti Children, have the resources to deal with what could be more kids showing up at the doorstep? You know we're, we um, 're a very robust organization, and our capacity within our hearts is unlimited <laughs> um, we are the, the only gating items for us really. Our bed capacity, which we can – and, and all of the capacity issues can be solved um, with with funding. And 100 percent of the expenses of Haiti children here in the U.S. is covered by our board. So every single dollar that people give to HaitiChildren.org uh, gets to the ground and we can build more capacity with more funding. And so as, as we um, potentially see uh, more kids coming to us, um, we – We don't want to ever say no to a child that has no alternative because the alternative for that child is death, and that's not an outcome that we are ever going to be happy with or allow ourselves to participate in.
0: So you've never had to turn a child away?
4: You know, we only turn children away if they, um, if we can prove that they have parents and the parents are simply giving their children up for uh, either convenience or or financial reasons. You know, so many parents give up their children in, in Haiti not knowing that there are services available to them. And so we've just signed a historic agreement with the government of Haiti, with the Ministry of Health and with the uh, Social Affairs Department responsible for orphans and orphanages to set up an abandoned baby care unit at the General Hospital in Port-au-Prince so that we can be on the very first line, on the front line of child abandonment, where we can intervene and say to a mom, listen, you don't have to give up this child. There are resources and programming available to you. For instance, we have relationships with 12 different hospitals in Haiti that provide free medical care to our kids and kids that we refer to them, as well as our staff members. And so um, we really want to keep Haiti families together. Um, We have seen instances of brokerage um, where Haiti's a a nation of about 10 million people. There's 700 orphanages, and there's simply not enough orphans to um, fill beds in 700 orphanages. And so there's a very active solicitation that we've uncovered through an investigation um, where mothers, um, because the teen pregnancy rate is very high in Haiti, Um, that mothers are solicited for their kids for $250 on the promise of education and clothing and nutrition and hydration in Port-au-Prince. And those kids regrettably end up in the international adoption uh, market um, for about $45,000 U.S. And so we are actively um, pursuing a campaign, a public service announcement campaign, to stop uh, the abandonment of children and let mothers know that they do indeed have other options other than abandonment. My understanding is that striking this
0: arrangement with the Haitian government was a big step uh, because the Haitian officials were, I think, somewhat uncomfortable with the fact that you'd drawn attention to this, uh, for lack of a better term, orphan mill.
4: Yeah, you know, thankfully... um... We've seen a a mindset change in the Haitian government and the the people – the the woman that runs social affairs and the director general of the Ministry of Health, which manages the hospital – they understand that the government of Haiti doesn't have the capacity to do this, and we—they um, uh, understand that we have the knowledge. Um, Susie Krebacher, the found, founder of Haiti Children, formerly Mercy and Sharing, was actually in the general hospital um, serving a, a similar role 14 years prior to the to the earthquake, and so we are so grateful and so thankful. And a lot of it's involved shuttle diplomacy between our office in Carbondale to Washington, D.C., meeting with the foreign relations senior advisors to senators um, from around the country and and letting them understand the issue. And it also involves shuttle diplomacy with the Haitian government and with USAID based on the ground in Haiti. And so thankfully, um, all parties have recognized that there's an enormous need um, that Haiti children, in cooperation with you know, our donor base and with our expertise, that we can actually fill a gap um, that is a significant um, and growing gap. Uh, Robin, just briefly before we go, had Haiti rebuilt
0: in part entirely after the earthquake? Uh, You know, there's a a sense, I think,
4: to to many of us of Haiti not being able to catch a break here. I mean, we hear that all the time. And, you know, people ask me, you know, why, why Haiti? And, you know, people ask, Susie, why did you start in Haiti 23 years ago? We see an enormous opportunity, and we see miracles every time that we 're in Haiti and we can actually affect change and move the needle quite dramatically um, with with expertise with love, and with funding and um, maybe haiti can 't catch a break um, but that 's not because it 's self deserved it 's just geographically in, in a position that regrettably it 's in the the path of hurricane seasons and you know so it 's been a number of years since a hurricane has actually hit Haiti. Um, but um, you know, we have tremendous hope. Patients are very, very proud people, and they just need people like us to come alongside them and to hold their hand and to encourage them and to show them um, how to lift themselves up and out of the situation that they're in. And just briefly, had there been
0: rebuilding widespread since the earthquake?
4: Yeah, I mean, there's been a number of rebuilding, um, and and here's the conundrum: um, having you know, I grew up. Um, in Bermuda, which is susceptible to hurricanes. And, you know, concrete block structures are great for hurricanes. They're terrible for earthquakes. And uh-huh. so um, uh, so there had been quite a bit of rebuilding. There's still a lot of rebuilding yet to do. There were still a lot of people living in very, very meager um, um, tents and shelters and huts. Um, and it's going to take time um, for people to move from a a culturally accepted kind of way of living to something that the Western Westerners and people here in Colorado might view as kind of more normal. Um, So we just um, need to focus a lot of attention on just on on helping and training and and equipping Haitians to to rebuild and to do so in such a way that um, minimizes impact from natural disasters. Thanks for being with us. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you. Robin Hamill, president of the
0: Carbondale-based charity Haiti Children. He joined us from Aspen to talk about the aftermath of Hurricane Matthew on the island. for the state's lowest wage workers. This election could deliver a big payday. Amendment 70 would raise Colorado's minimum wage from 8.31 an hour, where it is now, to $12 an hour by 2020. CPR's Megan Verlee, who we heard from earlier, recently brought us some thoughts of Colorado employers today workers.
5: My name is Corletta Hython and I live in South Aurora. I am a home care provider and I make ten fifty an hour. People don't realize that we're moving bodies. Just imagine moving someone's body, putting them in a tub, bathing them, dressing them. That's a lot of weight on you. So the money that they want to pay you for that manual labor is disrespectful. There's a, I can't even make it sound good. It's it's so disrespectful. I've been living with my daughter, sleeping on my niece's couch, living with my ex, and soon to be living with my sister. I had a place because I was working 52 hours a week, but I wasn't eating. I was paying my bills, but I wasn't eating. This is not where I expected to be at 50 years old. Are you kidding me? But
1: being 50 with limited computer training, it doesn't leave Python with a lot of job
5: options. I'm in a profession of taking care of people that even don't even allow me to take care of me.
6: Hi, my name is Melissa Hastings. I'm a single mother. Um, My daughter is 10. My son is 19. I work at a company that makes parts for braces, braces for your teeth. I set up the machines so that the machine operators can make the parts. I make $11 an hour. I work 40 hours a week for sure. And then sometimes on Saturdays, we do overtime.
1: Melissa Hastings is active in the effort to raise the minimum wage. She's struggled to even find
6: housing on what she makes. We live in a one-bedroom apartment. My kids have the bedroom. They have bunk beds in there. And I sleep in the dining room, so I don't have a dining room. <laughs> and, you know, it's, um, I-, I thank God that I have it, but it- it's-, it's really small. This is a big change for Hastings.
1: Until last year, she was a stay-at-home mom, homeschooling her kids But then the marriage went bad. She and the kids left, first for a shelter and then to hotels, until she could get her
6: financial feet under her again. I started at a temp service, so I was doing a whole bunch of different kind of jobs, and most of those jobs were minimum wage, or like $9 an hour if you were lucky. And um, those are hard jobs. Uh, You know, a lot of jobs that you get paid minimum wage, they're, they're hard jobs. Right now, I... Am on food stamps and Medicaid, getting twelve dollars an hour, I would probably not be able to get food stamps anymore, but it's almost like worth it because it's that that means I'm making enough. Really, I probably probably still wouldn't be, but it just it would feel like I am. I would rather make that little bit of extra money so that I could take care of myself and not have to depend on the government to take care of me and my kids. Yeah, $12 an hour would just mean a little bit more independence.
7: I'm Phil Alexander. I'm 20 years old. I work at Elemental Vapor Bar.
6: Vaping,
1: if you're not up on such things, is using an electronic device to inhale nicotine-infused liquids. Elemental's a Westminster spot where people can buy liquids, hang out, and vape together. This is Alexander's second job. He makes most of his money from IT work.
7: My primary jobs in the past have been, you know, somewhat rigorous and not a lot of fun. So I think it's good to pick up some hours at a place where I work with friends and am able to talk to people.
1: So how much do you make here?
7: I currently make $9 an hour.
1: At least according to your boss, she probably couldn't afford to keep you on at 12. What would that mean for you?
7: I would totally understand. I think an increase to minimum wage would really make this business struggle in that regard. And that's definitely something I don't want to see happen. Uh, in my personal experience, especially with entry-level positions, um, it, it can be difficult to get raises and promotions, but I, from most of my experience, if you just stick with it and really persevere through it, they will come. Uh, I think people really need to realize that like work is hard, and if they want to make those big dollars, then there's definitely avenues out there, but it just really takes that personal effort to get there.
0: The voices of Philip Alexander we also heard from minimum wage advocates Melissa Hastings and Corey Hython. CPR's Megan Verley produced that report. Find her earlier story with employers at cprnews.org. The Colorado Symphony is about to unveil a collaboration between two of the state's most prominent classical musicians. Violinist Yumi Huang-Williams is the orchestra's concertmaster and a frequent soloist. And her friend composer Daniel Kellogg wrote a new violin concerto for her. It's called Rising Phoenix, inspired by the story of the mythical bird that bursts into flames but rises from the ashes. hearing a preview Wong Williams gave during a visit to the CPR Performance Studio. Like most concertos, Rising Phoenix showcases the soloist. Challenging passages, soaring melodies. Wong Williams says the piece can be tricky, but she doesn't want audience members to think about how hard she's working as they listen.
6: That's my job, to make sure that it sounds seamless and it sounds beautiful and it sounds easy. Like, as an audience member, you should not be distracted by, oh, that's so difficult.
0: The Rising Phoenix Concerto debuts Friday and Saturday at Betcher Concert Hall in Denver. You can hear Friday night's concert live at 7.30 on CPR Classical. This is CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Airplanes aren't all that's flying around Denver International Airport. So are conspiracy theories. They've been around since DIA opened. Former Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura highlighted these conspiracies in a 2010 show called Conspiracy Theory.
5: They've got enough fiber optic cables to cover a city. A fueling system that's much bigger than any airport would ever need. Underground tunnels you can drive trucks through, and it just happens to be in the middle of a big, flat, vacant piece of land that's twice the size of Manhattan.
0: Okay, the theory is that elites will have a refuge during some apocalyptic event. Well, DIA embraces the unbelievable this month with a series of events. Airport spokesman Heath Montgomery joins us from his office. Heath, welcome back to the program.
8: Oh, thanks for having me, Ryan. Is it true that one conspiracy theory is that there are lizard people living under the airport? You know, I think uh, if you name a conspiracy theory that has been put out there on the Internet or elsewhere, somebody somewhere is connecting that with Denver International Airport. And I couldn't tell you exactly why that is. But, yes, it ranges from a headquarters to the Illuminati to a secret underground bunker. Uh, I've heard about alien runways that are concealed under the dirt out here. And, yes, of course, lizard people. So we've we've really heard it all, Ryan. Conspiracy theorists say the airport's
0: public art is a tip-off to these secrets within. Uh, you may have seen the mural in the terminal called Children of the World Dream of Peace. There's a menacing military figure with a skull face and he holds a sword that pierces a dove. And the theorists claim that it shows the end of the world and a new world order coming to power. Talk more about the connection to the art here as symbol.
8: Well, you know, anybody who has been through DIA knows that we have one of the most robust and large public art programs, really, of any airport in the country. And we're very, very proud of it. Um, But some of that art has caused uh, some people to connect it with supposedly the New World Order or a future military takeover of the country. I mean, you name it, we've heard it. But what you're referring to are actually two different murals done by a local artist here in Colorado, Leo Tanguma. One is actually titled In Peace and harmony with nature, and the other one that you referenced is the children of the world dream of peace. And both of these murals actually portray or are meant to portray uh, the people of the world coming together to heal nature and live in peace and rise above uh, things like war and racism and uh, destruction of our natural habitat and uh, species of the world. So it is supposed to be a very hopeful message that the artist has put forth but the conspiracy theorists out there look at one piece of those murals and both of them are actually two different pieces in the main terminal of the airport and you need to look at both of them because they tell a story as you go so that's that's sort of the story behind the murals yeah oh. if you want to eliminate
0: people's suspicions take them down underneath dia right
8: and are you doing that oh absolutely Yes, we are going to do that. So as you mentioned, we are embracing the unbelievable throughout October. And one thing we're going to do is we are going to give uh, one person a very special trip down into the underground tunnels and really their baggage tunnels. Uh, Anybody who has been down there, and there have been thousands of people who have worked down there over the decades that we've been open, uh, know that that is a tunnel system that is actually between the terminal and concourses to move baggage. And that's what it's designed for. But people insist that we are hiding something down there so what we're doing is on our facebook page actually giving somebody the opportunity to sign up to win a tour and they can actually check it out for themselves and report back to the world uh, to you and everyone else whether we're actually hiding a bunker or not okay very quickly about 30 seconds there is
0: a time capsule with a granite capstone i think put there by the masons and the words new world airport commission are engraved on it
8: what is the new world airport commission This is something that we hear a lot. So people connect the airport with the New World Order, which is a conspiracy theory about the elites of the world having a place to go uh, during the apocalypse or during a a regime change, whatever it is. Uh, But that time capsule was actually uh, put in place in 1994, and it actually was celebrating the opening of the airport, and uh, really it is meant to read the New World Airport Commission, because it was uh, considered a new world airport at the time. And this was a group of uh, people and an advocacy group of local business leaders and political leaders who sponsored and organized the pre-opening events, such as the laying of the capstone in the terminal. So really, that's all it is. But people see the Masonic images, and they see the words uh, New World Order, and they automatically think there's something going on. There's really just not.
0: Heath Montgomery, spokesman for Denver International Airport. DIA is embracing the unbelievable this month with conspiracy theory-related events. There's more at cprnews.org. All right, maybe you've gotten the blue book. That's the voter guide in the mail. It is a doozy this year in Colorado with all the statewide ballot measures. We want to know if you have questions about any of these issues, whether it's medically assisted death or Colorado care or minimum wage. We'll put our reporters and producers on the case. Email us with those questions to help uh, make the decision this election on any of the statewide measures. News at CPR.org. Again, news at CPR.org. And you already reached out to us on another question, albeit a lighter one. And that's, what's your favorite John Denver song? This week, fans of the late singer-songwriter gather to celebrate him. Mark Mitchell Sr., who lives in Canyon City, chose... Aspen Glow.
1: See the sunlight through the pine. Taste the warm of winter wine. Dream of softly falling snow. Winter's cold. Aspen glow. As the winter days unfold. Hearts grow warmer with the cold.
0: And that's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. Aspen the
1: aspen.